Hello, everybody. My name is Richard C. Wilson, and I'm here today doing this interview with Eli and Rahul, who are from a due diligence uh, background check firm, and they've done thousands of due diligence reports for companies from private equity, commercial real estate, operating businesses, um, global, domestic. And the last time I checked with them, they had done a couple thousand reports in a single month. And so I just thought that adding this interview as part of our investor club community could shine a lot of light and add a lot of insights uh, to the conversation. We're specifically recording this for our due diligence deep dive workshop, but it's also going to be available probably through perhaps our podcast or member portals or an investor portal. And uh, welcome, Eli. Welcome, Rahul. Appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks. Great to be here, too. Sure. So just to start out with, um, what are two to four fundamentals and pillars of due diligence that you could share with us uh, based on your experience and, and just doing due diligence full time? Because a lot of our members are investment firm principals or they're investors and they're still running their business or they had an exit and they don't have the deep knowledge you guys have in, in due diligence. So what are some of those fundamentals? Yeah, I think I think the, the two that that I would really emphasize are, you know, one, getting started early. And the second to, to kind of play off that is, is uh, get a full understanding of what you need right off the bat. Um, I think that's kind of where uh, a lot of firms that are successful in the due diligence process, uh, they, they do a lot of the, well, they let us do a lot of the heavy work uh, at the front end to kind of figure out what they need um, and, and to approach it with whatever provider you're using um, as a consultative uh, exercise. Um, because a lot of jurisdictions, the difference between jurisdictions uh, really plays into, you know, what kind of what level of due diligence you want, what information is available, uh, and, and how we generally approach it. Um, and also, you know, it helps us uh, at the start to have a con have the context to uh, to to help with uh, whatever you're dealing with. So if you're looking at um, partners in Asia, it's a lot different than looking at partners in Europe. Uh, and if you're looking at partners in Europe, the data availability is a lot different than looking at partners here in the U.S. or anywhere else in North America. So getting started early uh, and working with your provider um, to get their take on, you know, what, what you need uh, is probably the two pillars that I would emphasize the most. Um, I know there's a lot of programmatic due diligence that, that is convenient that you can say, oh, you know, for this, we need a level one, for this, we need a level two or whatever, whatever the scopes are called. Um, but you know, based on your individual firm's risk appetite, uh, I would just say work with your partner early and often because uh, you're going to get the product you need uh, in the time frame that you need it um, more often than not. If you start late or if you don't do if you don't do that, then there's going to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be a lot of last minute kind of rushing, and that'll definitely affect the quality of of the product that you're getting. Right, right. And I know that um, some deals that move very quickly could be, you know, three to eight weeks, but a lot of serious size investments are three to five months or three to nine months. Uh, when is early and when is enough time to do at least a moderate level of due diligence? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, I think starting earlier gives you a chance to kind of do a lower level of, of due diligence, maybe a lower scope is a better word to say. Uh, and what that allows you to do is identify anything that might trip up the transaction pretty early in the pretty early in the process. Uh, and then if there is, if there are, if there is information that is kind of a red flag or maybe a yellow flag, let's say, uh, it'll let you, it'll give you enough time to do a deeper dive to figure out 
what's the real context behind that information so that you guys, when you're looking at a partner or a transaction, uh, have the ability to ask the right questions uh, instead of just, you know, at the 11th hour, something coming up and saying, what are we going to do about this? Um, so, you know, we had, we had an experience, um, with a client who they, they started their process pretty early, uh, and they were looking into a medical, medical tech or medical device manufacturer. Uh, and we found out pretty early in the process that this particular provider was, uh, fined by local authorities for, uh, engaging in a kickback scheme. Um, and that happened about seven to eight years ago. So, you know, they, they, they asked the question, so what do we do about this, right? Uh, and they asked the question, well, what do people in the industry think about them? Do people still do business with them? And that got the ball rolling on our end saying, okay, look, we can look into the public records. We all know this happened. It's, it's, it's out there. Official sources say it's out there, but you're right. What are people in the industry saying? And that gave us a, a great lead time to talk to, you know, our source network on the ground that's familiar with the industry, uh, you know, to give them better answers into, do you guys think that, that this, this provider is still engaging in kickback schemes? Do you engage in business with them? Would you engage in business with them? And what's kind of the insider information that you're hearing about them? Because uh, you're investing in this business and if their buyers are unwilling to, to buy from them because of these concerns, then that's gonna affect the business. So I think that's a good real world example. They started the process probably two months before closing on the transaction. Uh, and they gave us a call probably uh, two weeks in that two months. So we had a month and a half and it was more than enough time for us to do what we needed to do uh, to help. Right. Them right. Right. And I've seen many times where um, if, if the other party brings up and say, Hey, you know, as you go through this, you're probably going to uncover this thing because it's public or, and just so you know, this is what happened. Here's how we addressed it. And if you proactively point that out versus having to find it, through a team like yourselves, and it doesn't seem like you were trying to hide it or not be upfront or honest about it. And that obviously builds trust versus when you guys work with a client and then some huge black mark gets uncovered, I'm sure sometimes it just simply kills the deal or they just kind of disconnect and, and go the other direction, right? Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I think that um, any sort of adverse info that comes out like that, um, it's, it's usually not the information itself that'll kill a deal but it'll be the failure of the other party to disclose it that kills any trust between them. Right. Right. Because uh, these red flags are, are red flags. They're not, they're not, they're generally not smoking guns that kill a deal. Uh, you know, you want, they, they basically are a pathway to figure out, you know, what's the context behind them and can we move forward from this? Right. But if no one, if they don't tell you at all and you come up across it, then that trust gets broken. I think that's kind of where, uh, we're starting earlier. It gives you the ability to ask those questions. Um, right. Yeah, for sure. And um, Eli, what, what size of a deal or investment makes doing a background check or getting a due diligence report on somebody viable or worthwhile? I mean, some people put $25,000 here, 50,000 there. Other people have minimums that are much higher where it's obviously making a lot of sense or it's at a quarter million or a million dollars plus, et cetera. But what do you guys see as kind of your minimum level deal size where it's worthwhile to, to get this type of work done? Sure, great question. So I wouldn't say it's as much about the deal size as it is the, the risk appetite of um, you know, the investor. So we understand that no two deals, um, you know, no two firms are gonna be the same. And so we have a very wide array of scopes um, that can even be customized if need be uh, to really cover the whole gambit, right? So we do everything from a, a summer associate uh, employment search that's 
going to be pretty much as light as it gets in most cases, uh, all the way through to SPAC and IPO level due diligence, right? That Rolls team handles. Um, and that's pretty much as, as comprehensive as the scopes will ever need to be um, in most cases. And so, uh, like Rahul mentioned as well before, that we have the capabilities to, if any adverse information comes up, go through to our source network and put boots on the ground, get real you know, human intelligence going. But uh, I'd say, yeah, it's really more about uh, what the risk appetite is uh, than actual size of the deal. Right, right. Yeah, makes sense. And sometimes it might even be, um, I guess, to your point, a personnel thing that has a broader scope or impact. And it's not necessarily due diligence on a deal, but a, a key person that you're hiring or whether the CFO should come with the company or stay behind, et cetera. So it's not always due diligence on a deal package, could be personnel or could be IP or, or something else related to real estate that is different than just the size of the deal, I guess, is part of what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we've seen uh, common practice be, you know, run diligence on this entity or ent these entities and as well as, you know, the managing principles. Right, right. Okay. And um, what's the number one most counterintuitive lesson that you've learned by conducting a couple thousand due diligence reports a month that you could share with those listening who maybe have only paid for or done five in their whole life? Like what, what's not obvious to someone who's kind of on the outside of just 100% focused on doing due diligence all the time? Sure. So one thing that I've found personally is that um, some some higher end deals that we've seen uh, having a key person either in the spot of president, CEO, or you know chairman of the board that is high profile, high net worth individual that's really been in the media in the public sphere uh, quite a bit, and you can find a great deal about them online. Um, I would have thought that maybe uh, most most firms wouldn't be interested in the level two due diligence, the source inquiries where, you know, we're speaking to people about uh, reputational components, et cetera, et cetera, that it wouldn't be as necessary for someone who's in the public sphere to that degree. Um, but to my surprise, uh, they really, uh, really dove into those certain scenarios with a lot more vigor than I, I would have expected um, just because Sure, you can you can read all you want online, but actually getting boots on the ground and dealing with you know, former colleagues, former competitors, industry experts about what do they like to deal with, uh, you know how how easy or difficult are they to to sit with at the table and and go through things. Uh, these are key topics that really need to be flushed out before an investor moves through the transaction. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. We um we acquired commercialrealestate.com last year for about a half a million dollars and. During that process, we asked for references um, on our own account without going through the potential investor and found out that somebody was highly litig litigious and we ended up not having them as part of that deal, um, even though they wanted to be part of it because of that information, which came from that exact type of source that you're talking about. And this was like a highly public real estate professional um, who's very well known. You can find 500 things about them online, but we heard from two different sources about all the lawsuit issues in both directions that they have had in the past and decided to step away. So I can definitely relate to that for sure. Um, anything else counterintuitive from either of you that you'd want to make sure and mention just because um, I'm sure your insights run pretty deep in this, this area. Yeah, sure. I can go. So, you know, I've, I've been in this industry for about 10 years. And I think the, the thing that I learned uh, pretty early on is that 
um, and that's counterintuitive is sort of the absence of any, any find absence of findings is actually a finding in itself. Um, mm. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of our, our clients that have had in the past 10 years do a lot of programmatic due diligence, meaning, you know, due diligence is triggered by some event that they're, that they're looking to, to, to get past. Uh, and a lot of times they're, the reports are what, what we like industry called blank. There's no adverse information, right? We identify and we do all the things that you want us to do, but we didn't find any adverse info. Uh, and when you're first starting off in this industry, you want to find stuff. People that are people that come into this industry as researchers are naturally curious. They have an investigative mindset. So, right. you know, you have this intuition to be, I have to find something on, on, on Richard Wilson. I have to find something. And there's most likely there's going to be nothing on, on most people that are in business transactions in terms of red flags. Um, but that, you know, that serves as kind of, there's a, there's two ways where that serves as a finding in itself. One is it gives our clients peace of mind to go through with the business decision, right? There's nothing adverse um, and there's nothing noteworthy. So you're, you have the green light to go ahead. Um, and the other way is, uh, you know, we've had experiences where our client is skeptical about a, a transaction or entity or, or, or people that they're doing business with in a jurisdiction that they might not be familiar with for a first time. Uh, and these people are making boasts and claims that, you know, they can do this and that and this and that, and they have these capabilities. Uh, and then we do our research and figure out that, hey, no one's ever heard of these guys, or there's nothing in the public records that indicates that they have these capabilities. And so the absence of those findings is actually another finding in itself. It's like, okay, well, we really have to go and, and, and do some real digging. Here. Uh, and this comes up a lot in, in, in jurisdictions. You know, I think the most famous the most famous case in the last 15 years is a lot of those shell companies in China where banks are investing in like IPOs, but you know, the address of the factory that they gave their underwriters or their partners was actually an empty field somewhere. Um, and, and that's kind of when we find that we're like, well, there's no factory or there's nothing registered at this address and any satellite imagery we can find in the last five years has nothing but farmland there. Um, that's, you know, we're not, we're not finding anything adverse. We're not finding anything noteworthy, but you know, that in itself, really should raise some questions about the investment that they were getting into. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great insight. And um, sometimes we see it on a very basic level when we're trying to check somebody out. We had someone that wanted to uh, partner with us for some of our investor relations clients, and they claim to have 13 years experience and all these capabilities and this big team. And then their LinkedIn profile, they had no image on the profile, their website, they had no bio for themselves. And their name wasn't even on their own website, no team shown on the website. And we asked them, we said, well, you know, do you have a deck or materials? Like who's on your team? What's your background? You know, just basic information. And they wouldn't tell us Yeah, They said they have this 13 year track record of working with all these clients. And my team was really pushing me to work with them because it would have been a powerful solution if it was real. And I said, guys, like, I just don't have a good feeling with this. It just seems like a unicorn, you know, utopia type thing. And like, if it was real, they would show off the depth of their high quality team, or they would at least show the bio of the founder, if nothing else, at least in a deck, if not on a website. So with family offices, I know many people are very private and private about being wealthy, especially in countries outside of the U.S. But I think if you're an operating business or an investment company, then at least within your pitch deck or teaser, you have to be able to show who's on the team. Otherwise, you'll never build trust. And, um, you know, we later heard of someone going to work for that firm and they ended up quitting a month later just because of things being, you know, not what they were claiming to be publicly. So I think that's something that uh, we've only seen superficially, but I'm sure what you're saying, I guess, is that when you do a deeper dive and a real due diligence process on someone, 
if you can't find them associated with any LLCs or any government listings or anything anywhere, it's like, what have they been doing the last 20 years? If they didn't pop up somewhere, then if they've just been sitting in a cubicle at some big corporation and haven't done anything as a business owner, I think that's something pretty informative. Uh, if someone's looking to back someone who's claiming a big track record as a CEO or an investment principal, right? Yeah, no, and that's totally true. And I think I think the second one kind of flows off that a little bit is that um, online doesn't have an equal meaning uh, everywhere in the world. Um, and I think that that's even more true now than it might have been 10 years ago is that uh, transparency, especially on the internet, has gone up and down. Uh, and I think it's gone a little bit I think it's gone a little bit more opaque recently. Um, you know, jurisdictions like the U.S. and and Canada and and, and Western Europe uh, are are pretty are pretty transparent. Um, you know, up to the point where it infringes on privacy concerns. But then you're thinking about jurisdictions in Asia where it's really hard to get information in China in some degrees, uh, and we have to use specialized techniques to do that, uh, or information uh, from Russian databases. Right? Some are transparent, some aren't, um, and so. You know, when when we when we say this is a public record search, I think a lot of clients are just kind of assuming sometimes that you know, hey, oh, it's it's on the internet. You know, everything's on the internet, and to an extent, that's true. Uh, but you know, when we're 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 definitely uh, bound by 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 legality, <laughs> and 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 so and and ethics, uh, and so there there is a little bit of a limitation now, and we're seeing it. We're seeing information being a little harder to get. And we have to find ways around that, whether it's using human sources on the ground, whether it's, you know, disguising our IP address with VPNs to, to, to access some information in some countries, you know, it's, it's getting harder. And I think that based on the jurisdiction, you have to adjust your, you have to adjust the scope and your technique. Um, and I think that's a little bit counterintuitive because, you know, growing up, I was always been like, oh, the internet's a, a the world is flat and then the internet's going to uncover all and everyone's going to be like equally, you know, equal access to information. But that's not true anymore. It's, it's getting a little more difficult. And I think that uh, we, we're working to kind of work with our clients to educate them with that fact and, and make sure that right. they, have what they need. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. We've used um, a tool called Wayback Machine, which allows us to look at historical records of websites. And that's been super helpful sometimes to see if someone totally changes what they're saying or how many times the team has changed or different things like that. Um, it's been very helpful. And then on the social media side, in terms of what's publicly available, we've looked before at hiring people, but then, um, or working with someone, and if they're just saying a lot of hateful stuff on social media, or drug or heavy drinking pictures, or just like crazy stuff that's a little bit outside of the normal, you know, why would somebody, like, if someone chooses to do that, why would they want to post publicly, and if their brain doesn't have the ability to perceive or guess what that perception is gonna be of any third party in the world. It's not just the fact that they did it, it's that they decided it would be a good idea to post that. And it's like a lack of judgment on some level, not knowing that someone's gonna see that one day. Um, I'm sure that's something that you guys have seen or you look at as part of your guys' due diligence process is like what people are posting to social media. Um, not only that they did that thing, but maybe that they somehow thought it would be okay to not care what anyone thinks by posting that, right? Sure. And uh, just uh, we, we've all seen uh, politicians, athletes, uh, you know, just famous individuals in general over the last couple of years uh, getting scrutinized for a tweet that they posted, you know, six years ago or six days ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, we actually have a, a great, a great report. It's our enhanced AI social media scan. So this is all of our reports we're very proud of have 
um, you know, multiple teams, tiers of investor uh, investigators on every single report. Uh, this report happens to be a 95% AI technology. And so it actually uses the technology to scan through not just potentially derogatory verbiage, but also like you mentioned, images. Um, and so just getting a sense of what the individual has put out there into the public sphere and um, knowing the type of language they're using that could be potentially derogatory. Um, and it goes through a long list of potentially derogatory terms uh, to, to look through. Um, but it can be customized as well. If there are some things that maybe, you know, your team cares about more than uh, others to others, you know, in some countries, maybe the use of drugs wouldn't be as big of a deal, but, um, you know, anything with bigotry or bad, you know, bad words, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this can all be looked for. So it's a, it's a great tool uh, and extremely expensive for, for what it's providing. Right, right. I mean, it's, uh, it's one thing if you're Kevin Hart and you're literally a comedian for a living trying to say things that are funny on purpose, but for, you know, a normal investment professional or employee, you know, there's some expectation of just being, you know, reasonably respectful, even if you're not, uh, you know, the most politically correct person on planet Earth. So I'm glad that uh, that's cool that you guys have that type of a tool. Um, the other question I had related to that is, um, I just wonder if it's always best to reveal things up front um, why more people don't get a in-depth due diligence report done on themselves to have in their data room or provide to investors because we had some former FBI investigators start a private equity fund and they claimed that their due diligence capabilities was their investment advantage in the marketplace. And they said, well, how can we convey that uh, to potential investors? And I said, well, why don't you do a in-depth due diligence report or have one done by a third party on yourselves. And they said, well, is that normal? Is that standard? And I said, well, no, but the whole point is to show something unique and to be more transparent than normal. But maybe I'm missing something. I mean, is there a reason not to do that? Or do you guys see a lot of people doing that who are raising capital, get the due diligence report done, put it in the data room? Obviously, investors will take it with a grain of salt because you hired some firm that you're claiming as a third party. They might want to go get their own. But uh, if an investor wasn't going to get one, and they know about this third-party due diligence firm and know that they're credible and not going to be biased, it, it could be better than not having one, I would think. But what's your guys' feedback on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen we've seen individuals do that sort of preemptively before before an investment comes in or before, you know, they're being onboarded on, on a board of directors or something like that. Um, I think the advantage to that is that you get a comprehensive view of what's in the public records. Um, a disadvantage to it is that um, what's in public records sometimes won't reflect, you know, what you know to be real. So, for instance, um, for instance, there's a lot of litigation records out there, like your traffic records, right? You could say, oh, you know, uh, I got stopped for a, it, it was a red light stop, but for whatever reason, the court designated it as a misdemeanor, right? And us as a due diligence firm, all we have are the records that the, the the state keeps and so what we'd say in the report is there's a misdemeanor but the charge wasn't identified right and they're like whoa, whoa, whoa that's a traffic record that's not an actual misdemeanor it's not like public intoxication or something like that right uh, and so those are the things that you know it's an advantage because it comes up and you'll know that that's what's going to be found so that you can talk to your partner or potential investor and say hey look i know this is out there and this is what this is what actually happened um okay. and so you know, it, it does it does bring up stuff that is 
that that people might not be proud of and and you know we've gotten situations where you know it's not our fault it's just kind of, that's what it is it's we didn't put the record into the court we didn't put it into you know one of these specialized databases it's just there um and also you know the negative media coverage that they might not know about like bad comments on like a better business bureau or any sort of like review website if you're if you're in the service industry uh those things are always come out those things are always like those things are always pretty subjective um we don't include those in a report as fact we just kind of say hey there's these, there's this many complaints. These have been resolved, and this is generally what the complaints are about. Um, and so there, there is an advantage to having that. I think that in general, you know, we don't provide advice. I wouldn't say do your own due diligence report and provide that to your counterparty. Um, I would say have it for your own intelligence and, and the ability that you know what's out there and what could come up. Every firm is different. They use, you know, somewhat different tools. Their methodology is different, but. Most of the things that come up that are that are going to be red flags are going to be found by by at least us. I can I can guarantee you know I can't speak for other firms, but um, they're going to be found and and you'll have a good idea of what is going to be found in public records. Uh, but they, like you said, for their own comfort, they should probably have their own you know due diligence firm run it or whatever partner they're working with, uh, because they're going to take it with a grain of salt if you give them the report, right? Um, right. Right. Yeah. Make sure it makes sense. And uh, maybe there's like an issue or two that could be remedied or addressed. So by the time someone does their own report, you can say, well, this is what happened. Here's how we addressed it. And now it's being fixed um, or it's been addressed, et cetera. Um, okay. And then uh, what is the most costly mistake that you see investors or investment firms make um, during a due diligence process? I, I think we just touched on it. It's sort of not being truthful and not disclosing things that should be disclosed. Um, and you know, it's, it, all that stuff just kind of leads to, um, concerns about people's ethics and, and trustworthiness. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we've had situations where, uh, someone had a recent, you know, a person might've had a recent DUI, but since they disclosed it to the bank, the bank was like, okay, we knew about that. Or, you know, if it was something kind of, Hey, uh, I just got hit with a FINRA arbitration, um, and, you know, they're like, okay, well, you disclosed it. It's always better if you disclose it uh, rather than the third party kind of finding out and then your counterparty getting surprised. Um, and I think that's, I think that's probably, uh, I think that's probably the biggest mistake I see when, when this happens is that people try, people, I think, assume that they're not going to find something. Um, but if you look, <laughs> there's a way to find it. So uh, be truthful, disclose. I think that's the, that's the, that's the way to go. Right, right. And um, what could a CEO of a company or an investment firm principal do to prepare for investor due diligence that almost nobody does that would be impactful and meaningful? So obviously your last answer is think about what would be a black mark that would come up and make sure you disclose those up front. That's obviously one way to prepare. Is there something else that should be done to prepare for investor due diligence? Um, I think, you know, that's the biggest one. Uh, I think it's also... Uh, having all the information ready at, at, to go, right? You know, have it in a package that you can just hit send uh, so that when you're making those disclosures, when you're making, uh, when you're making sort of the information available about your executives and your business and, you know, everything that you need to do, uh, just, have it, just have it ready to go because you don't want, the, the last thing that we want as a firm is to be the firm, the, the, the bump in the road that holds up a transaction. We don't want to be that at all, you know? We don't want to be the, the hindrance. Uh, and so from that perspective, I think 
having that information ready to go, having it, you know, packaged neatly uh, for, for, for your counterparty to take a look at. Because uh, a lot of times they pass that information on to us to kind of verify or, or look into. Uh, and, and so, you know, the more questions we have in terms of, uh, hey, you know, this person's not showing up, his name is John Smith, you know, we need more information on, on him to kind of identify him and see, you know, where he is and where, where he lives and things like that. Um, just having that ready to go, because uh, without that, it, it, turns, it turns a pretty a relatively simple process into a really arduous one. Uh, and and uh, due diligence should not, due diligence from our perspective should not be a thing that holds up your transaction. Right. Yeah, no, I love that answer because if, for those of you that are watching this as part of our workshop, you heard at the beginning of the day, we talked about one of the biggest mistakes is having a slow response time to simple due diligence questions having very weak one-line answers that aren't really helpful and transparent. We also talk about uh, later in the workshop, a master due diligence questionnaire. So instead of answering 10 of these different things, have one that's very thorough and is probably answering any question that's gonna come up with a well-documented, you know, an as-needed compliance officer approved reply or attorney approved reply that cites your sources and looks very thorough. And we also um, later in the workshop will give you a checklist of about a hundred things that you could look for during due diligence that won't be applicable to every deal. But all of this is related to being ready. So it doesn't take you five weeks to reply to a single investor due diligence question. It makes it look like it's your first rodeo or that it should be your last rodeo. Like people don't know like what's going on when you don't reply forever on a simple question about track record or someone on your team that left or something like that. Uh, my last question here um, for either one of you is what is a $100,000 insight for investors listening to this interview or investment firms or CEOs listening when it comes to due diligence? Maybe something that we haven't touched on yet or something that took you, you know, a thousand or 10,000 hours to really learn in this space. Sure. So I can, I can go first here. Uh, this might be a little bit more focused towards the uh, commercial real estate CMBS world, um, but you mentioned what would be a costly mistake earlier. So I guess the two are really tied in here. Uh, Rule mentioned that the, the U.S. public records are uh, pretty much as comprehensive as it gets. Um, but some of our partners have given us a shot after they've already been burned, right? After it's uh, something's happened and uh, something was missed by one of the, the quickie checks they do with an online provider. Um, and so a lot of people don't know that 30% of the counties in the U.S. don't actually have their information available on databases that these quickie checks pull from, right? When you get a, when you put in a name, John Smith, and uh, you send it off, you get a report back two hours later. That's honestly a bit of a mess, 100, 200 pages long. That's a whole new project to go through. But it's also tough because none of that information has been vetted uh, by a real investigator. You know, like I mentioned before, each one of our reports has three teams of investigators on it vetting the information, obviously quality control is key um, and turnaround speed is everything, but it doesn't make sense to get a report back in two hours where you know the information on your John Smith might be uh, a different John Smith or might be missing some information that pertains to your subject of interest. Um, so I would say don't wait until you've been burned. Like I mentioned before, there are a very wide array of offerings that can fit your solution, fit your budget, you know, fit your specific needs. And we're, we're happy to work with you on that. Uh, you know, if you choose to come our way, but just the attorney fees, the headache, the sun costs, if uh, something does go south and, you know, you didn't know that your John Adams uh, was extremely litigious, like you mentioned before, um, and you end up in a six, 12 month you know, litigation dispute and 
that, that's going to cost you a lot more than any background check will. Uh, I can guarantee that. So <laughs> yeah, it's good to know. They're, they're around, I think, 50,000 John Adams in the U.S. We'll make sure we're getting yours under, uh, <laughs> under the right scope. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, many times, you know, wasting time on long phone calls with someone who isn't who they say they are um, and making sure someone who says they're worth a hundred million dollars. You know, like one time we found out it was someone living in a trailer park and they've been just a little bit secretive about some things. So we asked some pointed questions and then everything unraveled very quickly. And I think for some people here who value their time, it's just as much as their money, if not more, before you book a plane ticket to go somewhere, or you're going to spend a half day of your life negotiating something, you know, it might be worth, you know, doing a uh, at least basic level due diligence check just to make sure that someone is who they're saying they are just to guard your time, you know, hopefully long before you get into something, you know, litigious. But yeah, that, that sounds like a, a great insight to leave people with. Um, Robert, do you have anything else? Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, no, just especially because over the last year and, you know, hopefully it, it uh, isn't the case moving forward, but you haven't been able to get on those plane rides and sit down with the whole management team necessarily. You know, that's uh, unfortunately not been the case recently. Um, so making sure that your John Adams is who he says he is. Um, it could also be very important to find out if John Adams, who, uh, you know, I always say John Adams, great character, Jay Adams, former alias, not the best individual. Uh, so just finding out what's behind door number two is uh, <laughs> also very important. Right. Right. I imagine so, yeah. Uh, Rahul, any last uh, comments from yourself? Sure, yeah. And, and I think Eli's comment about ROI is, is, is really on point. You know, the relative cost of due diligence is, is going to save you a lot of money in the, in the long run. It's gonna, and it's going to be able to, to, to give you the confidence to do the deals that are going to make the most money for you in the long run as well. Uh, I think my last kind of comment would be um, a lot of times the, the output in our product really depends on the input and, and what and what relationship you have with your provider. Um, and I think we make, we make sure that when we're uh, onboarding clients and talking to them, you know, before signing on with us, what, 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 is, the, what is the most common use case for your, your, your business? Um, because, you know, we like to take all our clients' use cases into, into, into consideration when providing them with, with, with reports. Because we don't want these to be just kind of, you know, printed out factory reports. We want, we want them to be, uh, tailored as much as possible to, to the specific need. So, you know, if you're looking at IPOs, if you're looking at M&As, if you're looking at simple, you know, real estate or employment transactions, we want to get you the most relevant product uh, so that, you know, the money that you're putting into the due diligence process is actually producing a product that's, that's worth your time and effort. Uh, and so that we are also providing you what you need uh, and not wasting your time. We don't need to get on a phone call with you every day. So you're talking to us more than you're talking to your family. Uh, that's not the type of business we are. Uh, we do want to consult with you, but but we also understand that, you know, you need something uh, sometimes quick and sometimes sometimes fast um, and low cost. And, and, and uh, we want to know your use case as much as possible so that we're giving you uh, that most relevant product. Right. right. Otherwise, it's, um, you know, garbage in, garbage out, or it's just yeah. going to be messy if you don't provide the right framework and expectation up front. I'm sure most firms and investment companies have uh, some projects that require a super in-depth report and some just need a cursory top level just to de-risk their time a bit or for an internship over the summer like you said something like that it's pretty low level great um well i appreciate both of you spending your time here today um just so everyone knows who's listening to this if you'd like to connect uh with eli and rahul um we're looking to use them for some of our own due diligence on investments that we're working to close 
uh, right now and also looking to see how we could be connecting them with family office club members uh, more fluidly through our 20 live events a year and um, this due diligence workshop if you're listening live now. So if you would like to connect with either of them and use their team's expertise for something that you're needing to connect, conduct due diligence on right now, if you're raising capital and you wanna see what's in the public records on your own firm or, or use a report like that in your capital raising process, et cetera, or if you're a private investor that would like to leverage their team, uh, just reach out to me directly, uh, richard at familyoffices.com and I can help get you connected right away. And uh, appreciate your time here today, Eli and Rahul. I think that it's gonna be super helpful to you know, a thousand plus people that listen to this uh, over the next month or two. So appreciate your time here today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thanks a lot, Richard. Great to be here. Take care.